Welcome to the Prime Domino Podcast, presented by Rob Worth, consultant to public sector chief executives and author of the book, Beat the Cuts, How to Improve Public Services and Easily Cut Costs. You can request a free copy of the book at www.beatthecuts.co.uk. And here's Rob Worth. Hello. For this episode, I was very pleased to talk to Mike Cook, Chief Executive of the London Borough of Camden. He talks about asking the questions, what is Camden all about? We discuss their system thinking work in housing. Mike talks about what outcomes focus really means and how measures can enhance or distort. We hear how Camden is using Yammer to open up innovation and communication and also about their plan to do away with a classic performance appraisal. Listeners should note that the interview was recorded in Mike's office just above the Euston Road, so there is some traffic noise in the background and a couple of sirens can be heard. I trust that doesn't detract from what really is a fascinating discussion. So here's the interview with Mike Cook of Camden. Thanks for being here today, Mike. Can I ask what is driving change and improvement in Camden right at the moment? Well, to answer that question, I'd probably just go back a few years. When it became clear there was a global financial crash and public services in the UK were going to have an age of austerity, we did our bit, put in place a three-year plan for budget reductions. But round about, this was now around about late 2011, I, as an applicant for the chief executive's role, was very much of the view that we'd done some budget cuts, but we hadn't asked the question, well, what's Camden for anymore? What are we about? And it struck me that we'd had 15 to 20 years of investment in public services, but actually we hadn't really made a difference to the big things. You know, a third of children in Camden still living in child poverty. Every child uh, and young person seen by our youth offending service had experienced domestic violence in their life. So I wanted the council and I advised my politicians that we should put our efforts to more making a, you know, back to a classic mantra of making a difference to our communities rather than a service delivery organisation which should see ourselves as an outcome focused organisation. So that's been driving our journey over the last three years. What do we need to do to really improve the quality of life for people in Camden, for everyone, uh, and make sure that those people who are the worst off, the most disadvantaged, don't get left behind in all of that. So really focused in on what drives value for money, what makes a difference. What do you mean by the difference between service delivery organisation and an outcomes focused? Yeah, it's a subtle distinction, but um, for many years, I think we have been delivering excellent services. Um, we'd had external regulators telling us that they were excellent services, but the measures were all about the outputs of those services, the, the way in which the services would be delivered, rather than the difference that those services were really truly making at quite a deep level. And from an, an organisational point of view, there's a big difference between focusing in on delivering a service and whether that's assessing whether that service is making a difference and changing it if it isn't, and orientating yourself to its purpose rather than thinking the purpose is just delivery. So how that manifests itself in many, in, in many ways is that to make a difference, you can't just think of life as your service, you have to join your thinking up with the rest of the organisation and with our partners. If we're going to improve childhood obesity, for example, that cuts right across what the council does, whether it's our physical activity service, our parks and recreation service, our schools, as well as the work we do with our colleagues in the health sector. 
So it's that, that wider perspective that's important. What did you do at the beginning to try and start moving that process forward? Well, to begin with, it was uh, setting out an ambition uh, to become, uh, and we articulated it in a plan for the council and for the borough, which had the original title of the Camden Plan. Yeah, like <laughs> uh, snappy. Snappy. <laughs> snappy. But in a way that symbolised the need to just keep things simple. And that had four or five just key headlines of the things that we wanted to do. But underneath those headlines, for the first time, our politicians decided to articulate the ambition at another level of detail. So for the first time, setting the ambition to do something about child poverty, to do something about health inequalities, to do something about worklessness among young people. And in a way, that galvanised the organisation and sort of re-energised and re-motivated the organisation around very, very clear purpose. And then myself, along with my management team, our task was then to plot a course for delivering that, for making sure that we delivered those ambitions. And that involved a whole number of things, including changing how we budgeted. So we've moved to something we've called outcomes-based budgeting, uh, which is basically shifting money around the organisation to where it really matters uh, and disinvesting where we don't think things are, are giving value for money um, through to um, thinking about things from a more preventative angle because prevention will be better than and cheaper in the long run uh, and more successful than sort of just palliative care so to speak. So our journey has been kind of had a number of elements to it but it's all been underneath that headline of gal being galvanised around making a difference. And did you have any particular approach or theory that you were following to guide you through? In a way we evolved, we evolved this for ourselves and I never sort of bought a framework off the shelf. I'm quite experienced in helping organisations change and transform and I have tried to avoid sort of big initiatives, you know, initial capitals uh, because I think those come and go and what we're trying to do is embed a way of thinking and a way of working and a way of, of way of being but along the way to help us one of the things that we did use was some systems thinking okay. and we tried to sort of adopt a bit of a you know a classic culture change some culture change activities and along the way, one of the things we found was actually some systems thinking interventions uh, was incredibly powerful. So that is the one explicit kind of methodology that we have been using along the way. Do you have an example of a change that's been made that's moved towards that outcomes-based way of changing the organisation? Yeah. Perhaps I'll start off with just something that refers to outcomes and then perhaps an example around where we've made progress using systems thinking. So on our outcomes approach, uh, let's take temporary accommodation. Homelessness in London is a massive issue. Typically, for most London boroughs, they're seeing an increase in uh, homelessness and an increase in costs associated with temporary accommodation that you need to help homeless people find. In Camden, we've booked the trend and our budget for temporary accommodation has gone down. The number of people in temporary accommodation has been reduced as well. And that's because we've taken a more preventative approach to working with homeless people. And it, you know, actually it's been a remarkable achievement. So that would be sort of something that was in that prevention territory, focusing in on the, out, the longer term outcomes. 
Something on the systems thinking side is uh, slightly different. Our best and most mature example is the work we've done in housing repairs, where you know, the headline is, through a systems thinking intervention, we've achieved the holy grail of three things. We've improved resident satisfaction with our repair service. We've saved 10% off the budget by avoiding waste and wasted work and we've increased uh, staff satisfaction because they're involved in a new way of working that plays to their strengths. So for us that's the most mature example of a systems thinking intervention. And when you're trying to spread this kind of thinking around the organisation, what problems or obstacles do you face? I think there's a lot of scepticism about the, the systems thinking side, more than just the philosophy of you know, being focused on outcomes and prevention. Those philosophies were, were fine, got traction, but I think people found it harder to see what some of the profound changes were going to be needed within the organisation to make all of that work. And systems thinking really puts a spotlight on those kinds of changes. And I think the scepticism that was there came from the fact that we didn't necessarily do everything right on some of our systems thinking work, you know, we've learnt along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things took a long time before they came to fruition and that sort of helped the sceptics really. We tried some, some approaches that you'd apply to more transactional work, to more complex systems, particularly around our social work service with complex families, as we call them, the, around the government's Troubled Families programme, and that didn't quite work. So we've had to mature the process as we've gone along but I feel confident that we've now reached a tipping point where the organisation understands its power and its benefit and is geared up to doing more and going further. How many people are involved every day in some kind of improvement activity? It's a really hard question to answer because I'd perhaps start off by saying you know, I would, I'd like to think our top 150 managers, so that's about the first three or four tiers, are absolutely get this, get this concept and are thinking about improvements on a day-in, day-out basis. There are 14 or 15 big areas of the council that have big improvement journeys going on at the moment, and I think they're directly touched by particularly systems thinking interventions. I think most staff, the vast majority of staff, are engaged in and understand the Camden plan and the sense of what we're trying to do, being different, uh, and the focus on prevention and have a, and understand their role in that but that's a bit different from you know the practicalities of how many are involved day in day out mm. uh, where it's really focused on those big 15 areas the way i think is that the ideal is that every member of staff is either thinking about or experimenting with or learning from some sort of change whether it's big or small and they're doing that every day because it just becomes part of the job yeah what, yeah what, yeah. what do you think needs to happen to bring that about and what do you think gets in the way of that because that's quite a big a big thing to think about to have everybody doing something every day you know true continuous improvement across the whole system i i, I do i completely utterly agree I, absolutely agree with you. I mean, it, it, nothing is more important actually. So the risk is that for any organisation that you think of these big sort of 14 or 15 big systems interventions and you think you, that's it and you've done it and absolutely you haven't. You have to embed it as a way of working. Um, so in Camden, I think we have been hugely helped by big accommodation change that we made last year where we switched staff from some old style, old fashioned 
buildings to a new building on the King's Cross development, which is open plan and facilitated really high levels of collaboration and completely different way of working, combined with what you crudely call agile technology, you know, laptops and software that enables collaboration at a distance. And in particular, we've used some social technology for business, a product called Yammer, where the whole focus of that is staff coming forward, looking, sharing ideas with each other in a very organic way, led by staff. And I can see the patterns over Yammer being towards that people thinking, you know, I've got a problem, can someone help me solve it? And people thinking about problem resolution and continuous improvement. Yammer's kind of a, it's like a Facebook for, for organisations, isn't it? it? You can create a, groups and send messages and put status updates and all that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely that. And what it does, it completely opens up the organisation. Uh, so a practical example of that would be that there is a group of people who have come together to think about a payment system that we operate and they want to see it improved and they've just self-organised and come together to come up with some ideas for how that might happen and that sort of thing just opens up the organisation and cuts across traditional hierarchies. I feel a sense of responsibility for creating the conditions for continuous improvement to thrive and improve so we are taking a look now at our classic personal performance management what I would call an old-fashioned approach that was very measured by classic objectives and performance measures and we're in the middle of throwing that away and introducing something that's far more organic and dynamic just in time. That in itself is relatively easy, the hard bit is then it, what the, our previous system was linked to pay which I think was getting in the way so we've, we're unhooking the link with pay which is the perhaps more bold uh, sort of step we're taking. And of course our service performance management has to change because if you measure the wrong things then you inhibit continuous improvement. So we're trying to shift that as well. I wouldn't like to say that we've got it all right, we haven't, but um, we're trying to learn from those bits of the council that are making changes and have made improvements and spread that learning organically. What do you mean by um, measuring the wrong things? I'll perhaps go into the detail of um, our housing repairs service and which I've referred to already so three years ago staff's performance was measured on how many repairs jobs that they went out to every day and typically you know they'd be expected to go and see six customers six residents and fix things on those jobs we've learned that that was the wrong measure and actually the right measure is whether tenants are satisfied with the repairs that were done uh, which sounds trite but what was happening was that the operatives had a sense of responsibility to all those customers on those, for those six jobs that they were being measured on and were worried when they hit a complex job that was taking longer, say at 10 o'clock in the morning, knowing that it was going to take a long time and that they risked not getting to job number five and six in the, in the day uh, on the list that they were given, they would stop the long job at 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning in order to hit their list. Right. And for the job that was taking a long time, that customer would then be really deeply frustrated at having a job started and not finished and rebooked, potentially for another two or three days, which meant another you know, time off work, etc., etc. There was lots of other things that we changed. So it's interesting that, that the operative's sense of responsibility to the other people was meaning that they were compromising the job that they yeah. were at. Yeah. So um, they, I 
I suppose, because of the way they were measured. They exactly. Were, they were stuck between a rock and a hard exactly. place. Do they, exactly. Do they annoy the four o'clock appointment yeah. or do they annoy the yeah. 10 o'clock appointment? Yeah. And in a way, if you're measured like that, there isn't a way out, out for them, is there? That's right. And I think, but before then, I think managers had assumed that either operatives were somehow not delivering good service or that genuinely the, the jobs that they were rebooking were genuinely complex and needed longer. And they hadn't really looked at the system that had been created that was was driving that behaviour. And so what we now do is send operatives out one job at a time and they're expected to go to that job and finish it and also ask at the same time, is there anything else I can fix? Right. And it might be quite a small thing, but they do fix those small things because those small things could become like a dripping tap or a, a system with a minor leak. You know, it could easily become a big job. So there's some prevention work going on up front. And that's a very, very practical example of the importance of measuring the right things. And so we now measure the service and individual operative performance on customer resident satisfaction, independently assessed by an external company. I suppose those little other things could be a whole other call to the council, a whole other job, a whole other call out, a trip out, by just saying that simple thing is there anything else and you could, something you could do yeah. maybe in 10 minutes yeah. or... You, you yeah. cancel all that, all that out. Yeah. And that required a leap of faith because it meant that we were investing in some of our repairs costs up the pipeline with the belief that repairs costs down the pipeline would come down and the saving would be greater than the initial investment. And a lot of the 10% reduction that we're achieving is in repairs, uh, uh, avoided repairs costs. A classic example of how better service to the public actually reduces cost. Absolutely. My experience over the years is that often people have a very classical view that if you want to give a bit of service, that's going to cost you more money. No, we need to improve service. Well, where's the money coming from? But actually, if you, as you've yeah. just talked about, yeah. there are examples, and I think actually it's not just little examples here and there. I think it's a true across the board. That principle of better service is actually cheaper. How many people across the council do you think really get that on an intuitive level? Well, I think the irony... Uh, and if they don't, what, what's holding them back? Yeah, well, I think the irony is that probably most frontline staff get this. And the beauty of this way of working is that you're tapping in to a latent sort of knowledge and expertise about how to make, be how to make services better. Because staff are dealing with the frustrations of old-fashioned ways of working day in, day out, and they see it. And the surprise to me of this journey was was unlooked for, but as a, a really added bonus, was how much staff satisfaction increases with this way of working because it unleashes potential. I think the difficulty is up the management chain because particularly in an organisation like ours, which has traditionally been over-managed, over-layered, narrow spans of control and multiple layers, and of course it's sort of self-reinforcing. It's no manager being aberrant, it is simply that it self-reinforces, you know, a manager kind of bears down on staff and uh, perhaps hasn't had the education to understand what their contribution is to making services better and, you know, there are some myths, I mean, one of the things that I'm learning is that some of this isn't common sense, that some of it is counterintuitive and I think there are some myths around, you know, myths around everything is achieved through economies of scale, for example. I think some things are. Some things aren't. Mm. Uh, there are diseconomies of, of scale in some instances. So I think managers not listening to staff and not understanding processes is a particular thing that gets in the way. 
So I do think the challenge is, for, is, a, is a leadership challenge, and I think that's a leadership challenge certainly in Camden we're still you know, working through. I think probably most of my senior leaders uh, get it now, but we've got a lot of work to do with our middle manager population to help them understand, because I think their jobs have changed, or are, are changing, because instead of command and control, we need them to be enablers to enable frontline staff to do that day-to-day -day improvement and, and checking and you know, to free staff up to do that and to support them in doing it. How does Camden go about doing that, working with those middle managers to have that change of outlook? What ways have worked and what ways haven't worked so well? The ways that have worked well is by giving line managers, middle managers, direct experience of this way of working. There's a level at which the intellectual arguments we found don't go far enough. People almost need to experience it to get it. So we found that showing people and giving people an opportunity to understand both what the problems really are and what the opportunities might be, it sort of does something to the level of commitment and buy-in and engagement if they can touch it almost at an emotional level. Right. Um, so we found that helping people go on that pathway is really helpful. The other thing that I'm doing, and you know, it is a tough thing, is I'm reducing the number of middle managers that we've got. Because an organisation that's focused in on the front line and freeing the front line up to deliver better services and use their expertise, you need fewer middle managers. So we are delayering, we are reducing the number of managers in a fairly, I wouldn't say a crude way, but it's unashamedly a clear target that we have to reduce the number of managers. Right. When you're trying to move the shift in thinking, what do you think is the most important attribute for a leader, at any level actually, but from your point of view, start off and then we can move to other people as well? I'm pausing just because uh, there are a number of things come to mind. There's lots of things about, yeah. but, you know, things you need to be about a leader, but I just wondered if there was one that kind of... There's something there about, uh, I'm not going to articulate it very well, but it's something there about trust in both the sense of customer and resident being right and people who are closest to the work being right. Traditionally, management in the UK, you could argue private and public sector, is predicated on managers being experts, they get promoted to manage other people based on partly their expertise but partly their, their management abilities. Certainly in the public sector, in local government, where we're very pro we have a large number of professions and professional institutions and professional managers, you know, planners through to social workers, through to housing managers, that you carry with you a body of expertise and knowledge and a way of looking at the world and in a way you've got to let go of that. Not set it aside completely, but you have to an extent to let go and listen with a very open mind to customers and to frontline staff, because the likelihood is they're right and you're not. When an improvement's made, do you ever see change sliding back to the ways that work was done before? Yeah. Or, and what, what can be done to stop that? Well, yeah, it's a really important question. Um, so I'd give the example of our planning service, which we thought how it was being done. Up until a few years ago, it had a national there were national planning targets for how long applications should be dealt with. That's another example of you know, the measure was getting in the way and some applications that could be dealt with quickly were actually taking up to the target and perhaps t uh, applications that needed longer uh, were being processed in that speed but perhaps not in a way that gave customer satisfaction. They rethought their service but first time around it perhaps didn't work quite so well and it sort of slipped back and perhaps staff behaviour didn't change and the old targets culture inadvertently was, was 
was clawing them back. So what they did was cycle back around through the process of rechecking what they were doing and re rethinking it and going back to go forward. And in fact, I was recently in a presentation that was listening to their journey and they're really reinvigorated and they're now back on track and the services let forward. So what we're learning is the importance of going back regularly. It's institutionalizing that continuous learning, both at an individual team, but also service level. Our adult social care service is learning from that and is going back and re rethinking some of the work it did a few years ago uh, would be another example, but uh, one that hasn't quite concluded, but it, it points to that sense of needing to go back and constantly reinvigorate this. Okay. It's, it's not a one-hit a one wonder. Right. And do you think there's a difference between going back and instituting continuous improvement? I've seen over the years is concentrated effort on maybe a part or a few parts of the system that then stops the change team go away or the consultants go away or the management focus move, moves on to another part mm. and what they haven't quite done is left behind that continuous improvement you're not driving the train anymore but the train keeps moving if, if yeah. you like yeah are there any examples where you found that you have left that method of continuous improvement and how, how did that happen if at all? well I, I think uh, I mean our housing repairs service is, is the best example of it just being continuously evolving and developing because of the way in which we've established that way of working and I think it's something to do with this methodology embeds things from the get-go it's not like old-style change programs because they would be programs with a program office and people would perhaps bring in consultants to help and the consultants would carry some of the knowledge impart some of it but then go away with some of it or you know and for consultants that could be internal change consultants from HR or a central transformation team and we try to avoid all of that by getting the people who do the work to do the reviews, to get involved in coming up with the analysis and the solutions and embed that way of working within that team of people and the managers as well. So a practical sort of litmus test for me is if ever I go and I, I, do, I do try and show uh, support for these interventions in the organisation by sort of listening to what they're finding at some of their key phases, a litmus test for me is who's giving the presentation. And I worry if it's the manager or the support person who's you know, helping them. I expect it to be the frontline staff who are finding things out and who are presenting it back. And if it isn't, then I worry about whether that intervention's going right or not and we'll do some repair work behind the scenes. Right, that's interesting. If you were spirited away and brought back to Camden, or to any other local authority, what's the thing you'd do in order to start implementing change? I know it's a classic textbook uh, sort of notion, but I do think you need to coalesce around a big ambition in order to get whole system change. You can certainly improve a bit of a system and improve a resident or customer experience to an extent in one bit of the organisation, but because the subsystems are interconnected, you can only go so far. And so the big thing for me and the big ambition is to change the whole, the whole system. Um, and that clearly is a massive thing to do that requires a huge amount of effort by a lot of people, if you like, the classic guiding coalition. And people need to unite behind that ambition. 
however you want to frame it in your organisation. I think it can be framed in different ways and different organisations will have slightly different contexts. Uh, but nevertheless, that sense of articulating something that's right for your organisation and then avoiding the pitfalls of seeing it as a transformation programme but as a way of working that you're trying to inculcate in the whole organisation. That's the job of leadership, in my view. That's the art of success. It's very tempting to look for the, the symbols of success being the programme office or the milestone chart or the Gantt chart being ticked off, but that, that isn't success. The real success is what you hear staff talking about, or you, the real signs of success are what customers are saying to you. Right. And along the way, the sort of signposts towards success are the water cooler conversations, uh, the things that people are saying over whatever it is in your organisation. For us, it's Yammer. Then you know you're getting somewhere and you know the traction. And you'll spot those bits of the organisation that aren't on board. Uh, so you go and fix them. And how do you encourage that whole system approach? You know, there's a classic idea of the silo, isn't it? You're improving the silo and yeah, yeah. you improve it, yeah. do another improvement next door and another improvement next yeah. door. And the second part of that question is also those the, the support functions like HR and finance and IT, which kind mm, of cut, mm, cut across mm, and around mm. and between all of those functional silos, if you like. What's the way of improvement across and between what are silos at the minute or, or were silos? Mm. And, and how do you incorporate the cross-cutting functions? Mm. Well, starting off with the cross-cutting functions, I think they're absolutely crucial to pay attention to because they get pulled into the new way of working and the changes, both indirectly, say housing repairs, we need to bill leaseholders, so you need to talk to your accounts payable service in finance to make sure that their way of working is all part of the new approach. So they get pulled in. So they need to be conscious of what's going on and change, but their own systems ought to be changing as well in how they're supporting internal customers. So some good discipline for support services. And um, we've applied some of this methodology, for example, within our finance department, within our HR department. But more importantly, even than that, I think is the fact that they are quite often control or contribute to the conditions for success. You know, I've talked about our performance management system but you could talk about our procurement system and how we procure our IT system. That All of those are absolutely critical to, to changing some of our, our frontline services. So they absolutely need to go through some of these disciplines and change in a similar fashion. I'm sorry, your other point, the more macro point? Working across silos. Uh, across silos, yeah. yeah. I would say that's still working progress for us. We're trying some of it. A practical example is what you might loosely call our street scene. If you look at various bits of Camden, various bits of our council are responsible for the street scene. Our housing department will be responsible for a, perhaps a strip of land that butts against a pavement that our environment services department will be responsible for and the two different departments would have perhaps different signage and different approaches to lighting. Uh, so we've got them to work together on a joint review. So that sort of joint approach to the review is, is enabling that breaking down of the silos. That's an example, but in a way it's quite a simple example. The harder examples are those that involve much more cross-cutting services for the softer people type services where health and police are involved. And we've tried some of it with the work we've done on complex families, and there was a huge amount of positive buy-in from our partners and uh, lots of support for trying things differently. But I would say that it takes a lot longer and it's a lot harder because of, you know, you're having to work through partner organisations 
uh, as well. So it's just, it's a marathon, not a sprint on those cross-cutting things, and there's much more to go for us. The recent budget hasn't been friendly to the future of local authority finance. Is that going to make these kind of changes harder, or just uh, give the incentive to, to speed up a bit? Well, it's certainly, for me, um, kind of this notion that I mean, I've been aware for a long time that the public, public services will need to contribute to the national economic problem by tightening their belts and being less, there being less investment on public services. So I'm not surprised that we have got more to do. And certainly the recent government announcements have made me think we need to reinvigorate our work so it's speeded up. So your phrase of speeding up absolutely is very, very apt for Camden. And I think speeding up definitely means with partners and having deeper, closer integration with partners. Because I think there are savings to be had in our total system, we call it. You know, the amount we're spending in Camden is, is the Camden pound, whoever, whichever public service is there. The harder thing from the recent announcements is that, that my politicians are of the view that uh, some of the announcements, particularly in the housing sector and housing field, we have concerns about less about the amount of savings that we'll have to make, but how it, they seem to run against what we're trying to do in a preventative sense. We're just trying to mull over what some of the housing initiatives and policies will mean for us as they start to come through. So those are the ones that we probably have most concerns about. Across the public sector, think of even even a wider system, think of health and public mm, yeah. health and um, links with other government departments such as the DWP. All of those departments are going to be thinking we've got even less money to work on partnership projects or improve the system as a whole. And I could imagine that it would be easier to think I need to protect what I've got I haven't got time for the other stuff. What's the answer to that? Yeah, I mean, just to build on protect what I've got, another version of protect what I've got is the risk of people in the system saying, I will do less in the knowledge that another partner will pick it up. We'll have, we'll have to, we'll pick, have it to pick it up. Yeah. And so what crudely you could call is just cost shunting. Yeah. And I just think that is unforgivable across the system. It's completely unforgivable. So building a coalition of partners focused in on the best way of integrating services, focusing in more on prevention. It won't be exclusively so, you know, some people have crises in their lives so you have to intervene, but you intervene in a way that's better for them by integrating services. You know, there is a lot of waste in the system. We talk about the crowd around the family, for example, and, you know, and there are ways of slimming that down by having lead professionals or getting social workers to work in GP surgeries and intervene quicker and earlier. So there are savings to be had in the system, and that's the prize, really. But unlocking that prize is, is the art of leadership, and I think that's what the most senior leaders in the system have to do. That's their role, in my view. When you look around, you see the mechanisms of policy and budget and the way organisations are structured. Do you think those things are helping those efforts of partnership at the moment, or do you think they are hindering or going to hinder them? I think there are some examples of sometimes other organisations and partners do things that, you know, in private, my, my eyebrows are raised at, and I think, do you not realise that 
that's just going to add to my costs and that can't be right or that you disinvesting in that might create more costs for us all and you know certainly some things that I wish that partners thought more carefully about particularly those partners that have London wide you know pulls on them um, but having said that there's a lot of great partnership working locally at a borough level we have a great relationship with our clinical commissioning group we're trying to plot a course together of improving services for people focusing in on outcomes making sure we make the best use of the Camden pound and I'm pretty confident that, that in Camden partners will work together really well and then there's a sort of a a London-wide level and a sub-regional level where London councils come together with London partners to plot a course through the health system at those different levels. So we're working really hard at all the different levels to to do sensible things and government are very positive about the idea of devolving some services and some budgets to London at different levels so we're in a collaboration with some London councils on employment services some employment services for example where uh, we're going to be doing a bit more for the hardest to reach uh, to help them get into work because we think councils are better positioned to deal with the problems that they have in health and housing for example so there's lots of positive things happening our time's coming to an end. Is there anything else that you've gleaned from the improvement work that you've done that you think would be helpful? I think we've probably touched on, on most of it. Um, I would just say finally that for me it's remembering that we're trying to change a system and a way of working that's been in place for many, many years and that change does not come quick or easy. It will take time but is nonetheless still worthy of lots of care and attention because the prize that's there uh, is absolutely huge. The prize of actually tackling some long-standing social problems, making life better and easier for residents and saving money to boot. Right. On that note, thank you very much, Mike. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Prime Domino podcast with Rob Worth. Send emails to rob.worth at worthsolutions.com. Read the blog at www.worthsolutions.com forward slash blog and follow Rob's Twitter account at Rob underscore Worth. Subscribe to this podcast by searching for Prime Domino in your favourite podcast provider or click on the iTunes link on any podcast episode page on the website. Remember to request a copy of Rob's book, Beat the Cuts, How to Improve Public Services and Easily Cut Costs by going to www.beatthecuts.co.uk forward slash podcast.